This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hello, Nubians. Mm-hmm. Oh, Nubians, what's going on? Good morning, Dr. Good morning. Good morning, Professor Hunter. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. How are you? I'm doing fine. Just uh, in the middle of summer, which is a beautiful time of year. Yes, you are in them streets teaching live. And I'm like, the one thing, and shout out to all of the teachers, all the educators. As, uh, That's right. That's right. Elliot broke it down from the Latin, uh, educare. Um, Meaning to draw out, huh? Bring forth um, yeah. knowledge uh, and disseminate it to the people. That's what you do. Um, and I appreciate you. I would, n- I personally never work summers. I, I don't. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, you, well, no, that's not true. I always work, but I don't work uh, university summers up until the last five or six years. This, this, this has been as a special favor. So, uh, but I always spend the summer with my high school students, and this year is no exception. Shout out to all the uh, the young people uh, and 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 the, and the and the my kind of replacements, not kind of replacements, certainly my replacements, Ansheree Hines and Stephanie Joy Tisdale and um, and Sister Shana, who has been there with uh, under the Center for Black Educated Development, Sharif Elmecki, who has, you know, Shana Terrell is kind of like his lieutenant there, who, who really allowed us to continue to fill that for Freedom School's work. Uh, this is 22 years since we started in 1999. And so I'm always with them. For, well, that, for, that that's a labor of love. But teaching yeah. summertime. <laughs> you mean summer school? Summer school. <laughs> yeah, summer school can be very different. My God. Um. So shout out to everyone who's doing it. Yeah. Uh, today is July 23rd, and what I do sometimes, you know, um, and not that we are tied to it, but I feel like there's these moments, these touch points in history that we we have been working through the last two and a half years in class with Carr. And I came across a name uh, in just doing a little research last night, born this day, July 23rd, 1840, in Warren County, North Carolina. And I thought it would be interesting to have a conversation about the the power of teaching, the, the desire to learn, and why so many of us don't understand the importance of it. I mean, I think we understand it, but it's, you know, we've been, I think, conditioned to think of education as going to college or you got to get your, you know, degree in order to be, you know, uh, you know, a viable citizen. And, you know, like there's these, these step stones that we've set up, but it's not about that. It's about really knowing. And I don't think we, you know, we, we push that enough, like to know facts and stats and, you know, so, this gentleman's name is John Adams Hyman. Hmm. Um, and what was fascinating, I wanted to just share this with you because, you know, I don't know if anyone watching right now would do this, but uh, some uh, sympathetic white jeweler uh, was in town and gave him a spell book because I'm imagining, you know, I'm, I'm also now thinking what culture, I know what culture this jeweler comes from probably did know that there was a law to not allow black people enslaved. Everybody knew. Yes, everybody. But gave this enslaved person, he was born enslaved, John Adams Hyman, a spell book, and he devoured it. 
And of course, when his master discovered that he could read, he sold him to Alabama, which is, you know, selling people down south, you know, selling, you know, is is punishment, right? Because it's harsher, harsher and harsher the further south you go. Mm -hmm. So um, on that plantation, he was sold again because he was teaching other enslaved people or they thought he was going <laughs> to influence them to read. Get, doc, he was sold eight more times. Mm -hmm. now, just imagine, you know, you're in bondage. Mm -hmm. You're sold because you can read now. You you have a thirst for knowledge. You're sold because you might teach. And I'm talking about the power of being an educator, power of a teacher, but also the power of thirsting for knowledge. Sold eight times. Eight times. All before the age of 25. Because at the age of 25, the 13th Amendment, of course, um, freed him. And you know what he did, Dr. Carr? He found his family now, I don't even know because, you know, there weren't trains and buses and <laughs> automobiles. <laughs> right. Or the Internet, internet. <laughs> or, or a telephone for that matter or any other way to research. <laughs> you know, he was in the Deep South because he sold eight more times Alabama. You know, then where did he go? Found his way back to North Carolina to his my, family my and enrolled in school. How about that? Where he received an education. He became a landowner and a merchant, but he was also committed to teaching in his community. And I just think about the, you know, the Klan, you know, he ran for office. Uh, he became an active member of the Republican party, which at the time was the party of Lincoln right. uh, that did the emancipation and proclamation. Uh, but he and 132 other Republicans were elected to a constitutional convention, which crafted a new constitution for the state of North Carolina. And I just think about, oh, these laws, these rules, this black man, 1968, helped craft a new constitution in North Carolina. That's right. and, it, and this is what it called for, public education available to all. He ushered that in to North Carolina. Hmm. It's something that he sponsored. Um, and I just think about, you know, he was elected to the North Carolina Senate from Warren County uh, in 1968 and served there until 1870, mm -hmm. I just I just think about the will of somebody who was generationally born to believe that you know you weren't anything right but somehow inherently knew got a spell book no one taught him how to navigate that spell book but taught him something that. that's right that's right and then wanted to share this with everybody why because the power of that thing was so important that they had to create a law to prevent that and we just willfully but not we this we're in class with cars so there's thousands no no of no, no, no no we all of us, every single one of us, to this day. Otherwise, we wouldn't be celebrating uh, the the figures we celebrate in African public rituals and public memory in this country wouldn't be laughingstocks around the world who embrace, in fact, the rejection of structured intellectual work as a quality. In fact, the dumber you are, the better you are. I was looking at the commercial for, uh, I guess, uh, our sister Issa Rae has a new uh, show coming on HBO Max, Rap, S-H-I. -I, I started -I watching it last night. Yeah. I started I mean, watching I, 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 yeah. <laughs> Ooh, ooh. And let me just say. It I ain't mad at them. Hey, look, these are people. I love our people. So, I mean, that one in this Brooklyn Misdemeanors on Amazon Prime, some of my young people are watching. 
you know, it's the baby talk for me that I, it's hard for me to hear it, but I understand these are people. I love our people. Hell, I teach our people. So I know I'm not, I'm not rejecting anybody's humanity, but let's be very clear. Literacy is absolutely not at the center no. of the popular image of African people in this country. That's it's why uh, some people call us Akata. <laughs> some of y'all know what that is, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, I started watching last night and I was like, could we have written this without all of the bitches and the N-words and all of the... Absolutely the, not. Could, have done, could you have gotten the message across of a young lady striving to break into this business and keep her dignity and all? Could could Absolutely you have done not. something? Because you don't talk like that, Israel. Right? I mean, but, but, but why? But why though? Oh, you made me sick. Why though? But why though? You got to do that. I mean, come on now. I mean, say less, say less, say less. But why though? I mean, let me be me. Can I be great? Can I be great? Let me be me. Can I be great? I ain't mad. This is not anybody's fault except the social structure. Yeah. So yesterday I had a town hall at Sirius XM with Don Peebles, who's probably one oh. of the powerful real estate developers in this country. Don Black Peebles, from DC? Yes. Yes, he Don is. Peebles, who, I stood, who I saw stand at Marion Barry's funeral and said, y'all need to understand who Marion Barry was. Yes. I, I can't wait to hear who that was. So yeah, you talk to him for real. Okay, tell us about a little bit about yes. that. Yes. Nubians joined us because um, it was, you know, we had a virtual, you know, folk pop in, including Rock Harper. Uh, shout out to him who I keep calling him the wrong name and I don't know why it's stuck in my head, but I know him and I love him. That said, you know, we we got into a little bit of a debate because he was, you know, praising people working behind the scenes to, you know, change the levers of power quietly. And then off mic, I said, do you think that that person has access because they represent everything about black people that makes white people comfortable? And he said, yes, but he said, yes, but. We we need to get to the goal. Like, you know, like he's very, he said, even with, with Trump being in office four years, he said the Democrats didn't even try. He said, this is a very transactional man. And if you look at the, his machinations, it's all about the things that he can get, right? He was right. a Democrat. He he was with Hillary. You know, they came to his wedding. You know, it, he, he's not, he's not what you think he is. He's a white nationalist because it serves what he wants to get done right now. And I'm not saying he's not. I think German, his father, the Nazis is in him. But he said, if you offered him something, he would say, this is what I want. So you want voting rights? Okay, here's what I want. There was no transaction presented to him. It was like, we can't work with him. He's not like these others. But he said, that said, yes, he's, he's definitely despicable. But I was like, you know, the people that are negotiating for us, the power structure, they handpicked them because they know, A, they're corruptible. B, they may be insecure about some things. They, they know where their pain points are. They can, you know, because if you're not, you're dead. Do you understand? Like anybody that can't, any like Martin Luther King's like, we're not waiting. No, you're going to do these voting rights or all these other amendments. You're going to do these. We're not waiting. You know, Linda Baines Johnson's like, wait. He was like, no, we're not waiting. Matter of fact, we'll be marching. And he was like, all right, damn. All right, come on, Texas white people. Let's sign these Negro laws into, you know, um, <laughs> Malcolm, right. you, you couldn't, and they tried, they tried to, you know, the FBI, because Don Peebles was talking about, you know, the FBI, this government, this, you, you're telling me that this government, and he, I mean, he went in, um, is something that can be negotiated with when the FBI put a hit campaign out. I mean, look, they, they tried to destroy Mar Malcolm, uh, Martin Luther King's family. 
I'm not so sure that they didn't have something to do with his death. I think they did. Oh, Malcolm, Malcolm was uncorruptible in that way because he you couldn't get him with the 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 cheating on it. And thank God for Coretta like not going for the okie doke, even though the okie doke was right there. She was like, This the mission is bigger. I'll I'll be in my feelings and and you know be with the mission. But you know, it's interesting that the leaders, because we kept talking, he kept talking about you gotta ask. I'm like, who's doing the asking though? Who's doing the asking? Some handpicked person that they're comfortable with because they're corruptible or they represent everything about black people that they they feel good about, you know, mm-hmm. not quite right to your point, Dr. Carr. So who gets the, you know, the brass ring and who gets to to sit at those tables and who gets to be the person to ask? They handpick those folk based on their level of comfort, I believe. And they don't represent us. I mean, why would we think they represent us? Because they look like us? Because they parlay an identity into an individual advantage? Because they perhaps engage in the type of rhetoric, kind of even sometimes very forcefully that makes, is it cosplay? Catherine Liu has a has a small little book I have probably around here. I'm not sure I do have it, but I don't know where it is. It's called um, The Professional Managerial Class. I was showing it. That's That's a phrase that is being used a lot around in, in, in academic circles these days, the P days, the PMC. The idea that there is a virtue to appearing one way. And that virtue accrues to the benefit of the people in that class. So so how will we know the difference when we show up to the events that demean us when we when we um you know Oh, you make me sick. I wish you would stick by talking about that. Come on now. Can I be great? Uh? Can I be great? Uh? Oh, you make me sick. When we give ratings, you know, when those become the number one. Numbers plan. <laughs> how, how, do, how do we have a different narrative when those shows become number one? And when we praise them, you know, in Moss, you know, when it oh. looks like, you know, when we show up for the thing that the very thing that buries us. Um, how do how do we make a distinction, Dr. Carr? How is there a distinction? Well, I, I, to, 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 to quote Issa Ray, we root for everybody black, but that's not enough. Um, black success doesn't translate. I mean, we've got that seventh principle that you um so with, with such vision frame the, the the sixth question conceptual category framework, the RF kind of studies framework. How do it free us? It's a simple question. And then, of course, the complicated question comes in, which is, what is freedom? What do we mean by freedom? Uh, if it is the capacity to pursue a life that yields comfort for ourselves and those we care about. And by those we care about, it could be blood kin, it could be our community, the people we came up with, or it could be a broader concept of Black communities, or it could be our people, you know, everyone, our common humanity. But all of the, it gets very complicated once we get beyond the the broader question, how do we free us? Because we got to decide who us is and we got to decide what freedom is. And there is no we. So again, the whole thing begins to dissolve. And so everything becomes a situation where we have to analyze everything in real time, in context, with the momentum of memory and without getting so caught up in the minutiae so we had to balance it that we get paralyzed i mean i i heard people as i said at um at mary berry's funeral 
we're down here at the convention center and he with everyone else who was there and i mean the full range you know minister farrakhan who said when he was interviewed about marion berry's drug use and womanizing and they said well how can you support a womanizer an immoral person who's and he said to the reporter he said oh well you're talking about john f kennedy right and then, of course, the whole place exploded. <laughs> he said, and Farrakhan's point was, please make it clear that people in power don't care what their tools do. They only care when you try to take power from them. So let me tell you about Marion Barry. And then he walked through how the Million Man March wouldn't have occurred except for Barry. And then you talk about, but John Peebles got up there, and I'll keep this very short. People said, you know, I was a young guy coming up in law and real estate and accounting and i had just come back i think he was was he even directors i think he's in jersey something he dropped out of college so what you need to know he was going to go to medical school at rutgers in yes. new rutgers yes. new york y'all okay. which is across the bridge from philly please understand rutgers newark ain't rutgers new brunswick exactly <laughs> that's right rutgers newark dropped out after he realized he only went, he was going to go to become a doctor because the richest people in his family, the, you know, his uncle or his uh, aunt's husband, his uncle, uh, was a doctor and he loved how he lived, you know. And then he realized he could do it in real estate and then he dropped out. He was like, and his mother actually wanted him to 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 do more. Like being a doctor was limiting, which is wow. interesting. Well, that's generational. Yeah. yeah, his mother has such vision. But yeah, no, he and he met his mother had him go become a page in Washington because she felt like he needed to understand as a black man the levels level levers of power. So I think it was John Conyers or um who's Detroit Coleman. Yeah, Jeff oh yeah, Conyers is Detroit. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Conyers, he he became a page for him. That's how he met Barry, Barry, Barry and Barry at like 14. He was a page 16. That's what it was, yes. And and then, you know, when he was 19, he got into real estate. He was an appraiser and had a deal um, with the city of Washington, D.C. that ended up uh, becoming, uh, you know, a major, his first multi-million, his first big deal, with a multi-million dollar uh, deal that, with the city in a building. So, and, 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 that's, and, that's what, and that's the story he told. He said, he said, Barry would come in the room with these white boys, these millionaires, these developers, these bankers, look around the room, see no black people and say, okay, this meeting is over. Now, when we have the next meeting, if I don't see any black faces in here, then that meeting will be over. And that's how Marion Barry put on a generation of underwriters and real estate developers and account and Peebles was one of them young boys. Exactly right. And one after one, whether it be uh, the time, Sharon Baker, who just uh, ran for governor in Maryland, he didn't win. But oh, Wes Moore won the primary here in, in Maryland. Uh, I made sure I voted on Tuesday. He's, he, 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 he will probably be the governor of Maryland, the first black governor, <laughs> because he because he's going to beat this Trumper who won the Republican. But at any rate, Rusharan Baker ran. He didn't win. He was the uh, the county executive for Prince George's County, of course, as they call it, gorgeous Prince George's, where they got the richest black people and the poorest black people, cheek by jowl. But one by one, they all talked about how Marion Barry gave them their first summer jobs as teenagers in that youth program. I ran to a bunch of Marion Barry youth program young people on Howard's campus this uh, on Wednesday with that same T-shirt on. I'm just saying, whether it be his mother, whether it be public officials who are for us, you wouldn't have a John Peoples, as I'm sure as, as y'all were talking about, had it not been for our community. That is we. When we say we, that's what we talk about. <laughs> Mary Barry, they wanted um, Patricia Harris. Patricia mm -hmm. Harris. And they put everything behind her. Everybody. This is what I'm talking about. There are handpicked leaders. Yes. And so we have to, and he was not a handpicked leader. 
No, he was not. Well, he was handpicked. He was handpicked by the black poor. By the people. That's no people. question. No question. Which is why if you say anything about, about Marion Barry in DC right now, you better duck. <laughs> you know what I'm James, and he went down a list of, of politicians James, no question. who part, came out of that civil rights um, mm -hmm. activism who understood their what the assignment is, That's you know. Right. And it's not, he said today. No, nah, they they they're not they're there for the establishment. They want to fit in. They want to be a part of it. And he said, "I'm an outsider. And folk in real estate, they they're not rocking with me, and that's okay." They, they can't get around him. That's what they, he said. They it's too big to get around. Right. <laughs> you you go down downtown DC, you see people name all okay all kinds of. Stuff. You can't get around, which was always Marion Barry's vision. But but let's let's stay with this. I mean, I think it was a stroke, another stroke of inspiration and genius for you to evoke John Adams Hyman. Cause John Hyman doesn't have a big footprint. At all. He doesn't have a book, for big, but his story is a metaphor for everything we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's a guy, like you said, this guy, he was apprenticed to him. North Carolina, like you said, is different than Alabama, different than Mississippi. In this regard, uh, there is, you know, those of us who are in the room this morning from the Caribbean, for example, whether you're in the U.S. or in Africa and Europe or, or or tuning in from the Caribbean. You know that in the 1830s, when the system of legal enslavement ended in the British Caribbean in particular, because the French Caribbean, you know, the Haitians had taken care of that business at the beginning of the 19th century. There's a system of apprenticeship, almost like a form of an extension, an afterlife of enslavement. To go back to Carter Woodson, the miseducation of the Negro, when he talks about the afterlives of slavery in the U.S. being apartheid, well, he, well, we would say apartheid or Jim Crow during during Woodson's period, but in place in places around the United States during the period of enslavement, you could hire out enslaved Africans, and there's you know all kind of writing on that, and scholarship on that. Well, a place like North Carolina, which is no more or less brutal than enslavement anywhere people say well slavery was harsher here harsher there slavery is slavery and there are degrees of physical harm and physical danger and but emotionally psychologically you have been enslaved and we still bear the great marks of enslavement but in a place like north carolina virginia and even in the deeper south beyond tennessee where i was born into the appalachian south but then you go deeper into the south alabama mississippi Georgia, you could hire enslaved people out. Remember the complex nature of interaction that we read about when we read Blake or the Huts of America. And again, I mean, man, this dubious space, I can't tell you how just reinvigorating it is to have thousands of people engaged at the same time in a real-time read-through because you get a sense of that. And Delaney, of course, was writing during the period of enslavement. But in John Hyman's case, John Adams, not John Brown, John Adams Hyman's case, he was hired out. He was he was he was an apprentice. And that's when he taught himself to read, because the guy who he was apprenticed under was um, a jeweler, as you say. But here's the problem. Once he got caught with that spelling book. And I think about the opening pages of James Anderson's book, The Education of Blacks in the South, or the uh, volume and recordings from the Library of Congress, Work Progress Administration, recordings of formerly enslaved Africans who were interviewed in the 1930s. There's one called Remembering Slavery. 
and there's a companion set of recordings. When I bought it many years ago, when it first came out, it was on cassette. Then they moved to CD, and I'm sure it's streaming now. But if you get this volume called Remembering Slavery, it's from the Library of Congress, or you can go to the Library of Congress site and find these, these recordings yourself. And James Anderson talks about an enslaved African who, when the enslaver came into the house, this brother was so afraid that he'd get caught with this book he was trying to read that he threw it behind the stove and he took a beating for being after being accused of doing something else like stealing or something he said oh, yeah i'd much rather do that because if you they catch me with this spelling book oh all hell's gonna break loose and in the volume remembering slavery the first i'll never forget popping that cassette into a player at home and hearing the sister i forget who it was there were a number of actors i want to say alfrey woodard maybe was one of them reading these accounts and then you hear the recordings of the enslaved themselves but reading one of the narratives that had been taken and was it papa dallas maybe is a he's a fairly known uh brother in terms of a kind of metaphor he, he was a living person but he became a metaphor for the exactly what you raised in prof this fear of literacy and he, he the story as the story he told goes as an old man in the 1930s as a child being discovered uh, trying to read and these uh subhumans sub sub humans took him out in the yard gathered the human beings who we refer to as enslaved around burned his eyes out so he lived he lived a long time he lived to the 1930s to tell this story and and he talked about the fact that learning to read would be a key to freedom and so he lived the rest of his life imploring people particularly young people to learn how to read because you'd be free because he tried to learn how to read and they burned his eyes out for it and i can hear him my name but stop uh, everybody doesn't have to do that uh no, I'm not blaming anybody who has been born into a system for which black subhumanity is the organizing principle, because that redefines the answers to the question, how do we free us? How do we free us mean money? Do I need to twerk? Do I need to go out here and hustle? I need to, you know, the bag, the metaphorical bag. Do I need to get this bag? What is the bag? Man? The bag is a proxy for something else. The bag is never the bag. The bag is a proxy for what? Uh, buying your leisure time back so that you can relax. And when you relax, what you're going to do? You're going to get a ski jet. You're going to get a big house and sit around in it. You're going to pop them bottles. The bag is just a, a tool to get to something else. Now, what has been obscured, of course, is the role of labor in building a society and what it means to work. But at any rate. No, no, please stay there because... There'll be some people watching this on YouTube, not in Nubia, who will be in their feelings about what is being said because they love Issa Rae, they love. You oh, know. I love her too. I think she's incredible, and 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 she knows that work ethic after all. Her father is Senegalese. Love her. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> they love all of this, and in talking about it in this way, they feel in, judged or indicted, and. Yeah. The, the knee-jerk response is to, you know, lash out because that's what an undeveloped mind and spirit would do instead of sitting in the criticism of what has been done to us, not of you, no one's criticizing you, it's not your fault, 
But I think about, you know, as you're talking, Dr. Carr, you know, um, up from slavery, I think Booker T. Washington writes about on the plantation of leisure time. And if you were caught not participating in the drink and the folly and the dance, you could be beaten for that. It would stand you out uh, among the enslaved as a problem if you did not drink the liquor that was given on New Year's. That's right. Christmas. If you didn't get drunk and dance and have the folly. And I think about that, as you mentioned, twerking and all of this and who we celebrate now and why. What is it going to take? Because it is so, it's almost like telling somebody your name is not your name. Mm. And as Marlo reminds us in The Wire, my name is my name. <laughs> Which really speaks to the issue. All you got is your reputation. All you have is your reputation, as uh, Del Rolando told Denzel Washington in Malcolm X, the movie by Spike Lee. Man got a rep. That's all he got is a rep. So if you challenge his rep, you challenge his humanity because at the center of that has been the dispossession of our capacity to develop our humanity. So therefore, all you have is your dignity and your self-respect. So what that engenders is a real stigma. And for, for us, Black life, in too many instances, is a question of stigma, So, which leaves us perceiving or thinking that we only have two options, either embrace the stigma and make it work for us or surrender to the stigma. So if you embrace the stigma and wake it work to us, you might write a line like, you know, Black and ugly as ever, but Gucci down to the socks. The whole idea is that, you know, I have to embrace. Why would you call yourself ugly, Brother Wallace? Why would, you, why would you put black and ugly in a phrase? Because this is the stigma. All I have is my name. All I have is my rep. So I'm just out here trying to feed my daughter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, you know, it was all a dream. I, we used to read Word Up magazine. You know, this is all I have. <laughs> so in that respect, this is not a critique. Oh, absolutely not. And this is where I would draw the line between, between folks who beat up black people and folk who love ourselves and say, this isn't a beat up. This is a, as we always use this metaphor, we've been using it now for two and a half years, pouring this, these clean glasses of water. So rather, you know, we, we come perilously close because it's very emotional. We don't, we react this way because we love our people. I'm, I'm reading, listening, which is not reading. I'm listening uh, to a book called Gangsters versus Nazis. Jane oh, L. Wow. Jane Elliott recommended it when she was on the show, our cousin. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm listening. So one of the big Jewish gangs was called Murder, Inc. Uh, so yeah, Meyer Lansky, what's his name? What's the boy's name? Uh, Charlie Luciano. <laughs> yeah. Lucky Luciano, no question. So um, the premise is, you know, of course, Hitler's rise in his 1930s. Um, what people don't know is that there was a big, large faction of, of Nazis in, in New York, Yorkville, um, uh, Manhattan, Staten Island, New Jersey. They were meeting and the Jewish community got together from the rabbis to the politicians to the gangsters, which they never came together before to make sure whenever they showed up to have meetings, we were going to whoop their ass. No question. And so they deployed the gangsters in their community like the rabbis. This is distasteful. So don't tell us about it. But, you know, they had journalists to let them know when is the next meeting and they would whoop their ass. And the name of the group that would go out and 
beat the Nazis' asses every time they would convene in the United States. They were called Murder, Inc. And I was like, we got Death Row, Murder, Inc., and y'all ain't doing none of that work. Because they don't know nothing about that. But you name yourself after something without understanding, you know, and then you don't do any of that. So we got no. and and Murder, Inc., and Death Row, and all of that, and you're, you're, you're killing us. In the, words of, in the words of It's So Easy, uh, De La Soul, with Common and them, what did they say? Uh, why you acting all pricey and shysty? The only Italians you know is Icy's. Niggas price me. In other words, <laughs> I'm keeping it clean like a washing machine. <laughs> anyway, yeah, think about De La Soul. If money makes a man uh, rich, we got to rearrange. What makes the world go round? <laughs> he said, uh, the diamond ain't nothing but a rock with a name. Love ain't nothing but emotion and game. <laughs> in other words, uh, you know, it's interesting. You think about that back in the late 80s, early 90s. In that moment, I was uh, one. Of, we were talking about Queen Latifah. I was showing my students this uh, on Tuesday, Ladies First, of course, Moni Love and, and Queen Latifah. And we were talking about that period in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, among other things, the, the native tongues, right? Tribe Called Quest, Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, Queen Latifah. And, you know, it just makes you reflect on what happens when culture becomes delinked. Um, and that does that is not to romanticize those moments. Right. Because we see hip hop, you know, culture always is going to break through. Culture is always going to represent the moments. That's why in our conceptual category framework, those six categories, the last two are movement and memory and cultural meaning making. Cultural meaning making, of course, asks the question, our sixth question. What music, what art, what cultural texts and practices across the range, however you want to describe them, did or do African people create in the moment we are focusing on to mark that time and space? So if you go back to the late 80s, early 90s, you see, particularly in commercial hip hop, this tug between the social structure, which is figured out like it always does, how to profit from black cultural practices and the governance structure, which also wants to profit people in, in, in our communities, but who also are attempting to communicate something drawn from their experiences and their memory. And so you see that generation, whether it be Eric B and Rakim or Chuck D and you know who come from cultural workers in their families and their communities, Fair Five Freddy, trying to express these, these kind of generational markings in cultural meaning making. And they uh, have an orientation, some of them, Dana Owens, Queen Latifah as we call her, they have an orientation that has a stronger sense to go back to the fifth category, movement and memory, which asks the question, how did or do people of African descent remember previous experiences, they have a stronger connection to that momentum of memory, some of them, because their parents and their grandparents and their uncles and aunts, some of them migrating through the great migrations. And by the great migrations, I don't mean from the U.S. North to the U.S., uh, U.S. South to the U.S. North alone. I mean from the Caribbean to places like New York. I mean from the continent of Africa to the United States and back and forth and going back and forth. So that momentum yields a moment in this emerging set of cultural texts and practices we call hip-hop that some people even now in retrospect I mean, my, 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 my friend and brother Bakari Katwana among them who wrote a whole book on this called the golden age of hip-hop and I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily do that because again history tends to narrate things in retrospect and frame them in ways that create straitjackets sometimes so I wouldn't say that 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 sentiment 
is not present now when you listen to Kendrick Lamar or J. Cole, when you grapple with, you know, anybody from Gene Gray to, I mean, I'm just thinking just randomly about people who or hip hop performers who black thought who are, are tapping into that momentum of memory. But when I think of De La Soul's critique in particular, you know, but not just De La Soul. I mean, Latifah, of course, I mean, you know, Jungle Brothers. But when I think of De La Soul, a song like Stakes is High. You know, they are really commenting on this. You know, they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm sick of sick of award shows, sick of name brand clothes. <laughs> I mean, they go they going through it, right? They're going through it. And if you ever watch the accompanying video, it starts with Maury Povich, who has moved from being a talk show host to a you are not the father negro a caricature of himself and he opens up with this Babylon rap in the 90s what's it about and then you see de la soul trying to grapple with what is clearly a point of inflection and the cultural meaning making going forward carries the marks of that because the market the social structure market has so suffused that cultural meaning making category and the practices of cultural meaning makers, as almost it always does, converting this cultural meaning making into a straight commodity. And you have folk who are still trying to solve an equation that really can't be solved. How am I going to profit? And at the same time that I profit, how am I going to try to socialize young people in a way that will help them find their common humanity? I, I caught a little bit of that conversation you were having with Kel. <laughs> this is fascinating, right? Or a guy like Nick Cannon, who I think in a stroke of genius creates this kind of child, kid oriented thing, which at the same time is straddling the fence with this hip hop generation. So while he's talking about NBA young boy and blue face and all them, he's also over here on Wildin' Out with what I always tell him is a genius format for education if we could figure it out. Except if you push too hard on that, they're going to take everything in your life because this yeah. is not, you could free us. You know they haven't because, as I mentioned, he's not a threat to the, he's not a threat to the power structure. And I know you love him, but he's not yeah. a threat. And, and to, you know, and he may not even in his mind, he thinks that I am, I'm here. I'm going to be able to do all of these things. Absolutely. You, you don't have the scholarship to do it. So the fact that you even started class, I'm sorry, Carl, because it pisses me off every time. I'm like, <laughs> What, what foundational knowledge do you have to to even have the audacity to put yourself in the seat of an educator? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think I think part of it though. Well, with that one, he was he he. I can I can vouch for he was in school reading. He doing what but you know. He ain't in school like you were in school. Oh no, well, nobody, nobody. In school. <laughs> Don't mean you read a couple of books. Now you can. Come on now. Absolutely. All right. Let me, let me let me stop. No, 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 no. This, look, this is it. No, please, no. In fact, this is it. Part of the real challenge we have is that at some point we're gonna have to choose. What's it gonna at some take? Point we're gonna have to choose. We can't because what all it does is get us in trouble. What is it gonna take for us to choose? Oh, well, I don't know. I don't think we're gonna choose, frankly. That's why another reason I because there's no we. I think the, you know, oh man, see, you know, pull, see, this is what happened. See, all this started, I want all this started with John Adams Hyman. I want y'all, please, then we, I'm seriously, because we are set, we are faced with an impossible set of choices. And so every generation attempting to make choices that are impossible are faced with the absurdity of this situation. I know we want to believe that we live in a world 
where somehow this can be worked out in the existing structure. It can't. It can't. And so whether it be a Nick Cannon coming out of San Diego who comes from a line of preachers on his daddy's side, who's trying to do, a, who then comes into this space and says, I'm going to be a comedian. And then I get caught up in the game. I'm going to be in a hip hop artist. I'm going to sing. I'm going to take this money and flip it over here. I'm going to help my friend kind of Kaepernick. I'm going to put Professor Griff at a table. And the next thing you know, he gets just close enough to the sun to get burned. And then come into, so I'm going to go to Howard. He said, that's a stunt. Nick ain't coming to Howard. No, he came every week. And then some kind of way, the two of us get linked. And even some kind of way, his brother Javen was in my class. He brought Nick. We sat in there talking. Any book I any book I said, let's read this. He read it cover to cover. And we sat and talked about it. And he said, because he had the resources, let me put a camera on this. And I understand, I ain't Nick Cannon. I'm not trying to be Nick Cannon. And if I was trying to be, it, I would look utterly Foolish. Shout out to all you uh, older people trying to still be hip hop relevant. But <laughs> the point is, no, no, but Nick and then I'm saying, well, you have their attention. So I will take full share and measure of responsibility for not only allowing that, but pushing it. Because in part, I'm saying if you can get their attention, then we can build something to move out of that space. Now, of course, Nick doesn't have that filter. And so what happens is, he gonna talk to everybody. So it's me one day, it's uh it's Jules Harrell in psychology one day at Howard, it's Michael Eric Dyson, and then it's Umar Johnson, then it's Dr. Sebi, then it's Professor Griff, then it's Rissa Islam. And then why? Because niggas like these the people who, unlike us, thousands of people in narrative and Nubia and growing daily. We put this on YouTube so people can, you know, have this front porch, thousands more coming in, and then people are coming in at the same time. If you go to these other things on YouTube, here's somebody acting a fool. Here's somebody who this is a Merrill broke up. Uh, the brand is no longer strong. But when it was, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And then you go to the sports thing, Nick River, and I'm thinking, can you ride this tiger? And your observation is, is, is bracingly accurate. You can't ride the tiger. The which is why in your vision, you say, you know what? Let's create a space where we're not even going to try. And so, again, we spent a, over a month, six weeks, almost reading and thinking with and alongside and beyond and within Octavia Butler, who is writing and grounded in the sense that this can't be saved. So then, OK, so what's the answer? Well, I mean, the answer for me is simple. It's a fantasy. <laughs> so, wait, wait. so but what about here well okay the answer here would be get your crew together don't ignore the distractions move slowly and build and everything around you and the social structure will change because that's what happens it's a it's a hell of a lesson but you i mean you brought it up with with larry and mary mm -hmm. person who decided patricia harris supposed to beat him in in that mayoral race no he question beat four to one because people had somebody to show up for and we have the numbers we have the numbers today we have the numbers in several of these southern major swing states yes but there's no candidate like a marion barry who we know is going to be there for us that you know so now you, know, Barnes, you got your you know in louisiana gary chambers you have Charles Booker in, in uh, Kentucky. You have um, Chris Jones in Arkansas. I'm, I'm talking about all these different various races, people that you know are going to roll up their sleeves and get busy. Will we show up? We didn't show up for Malcolm Kenyatta in nope. Pennsylvania. So, 
so it's like, you know, oh, well, he, I don't know. You know, like we got all of these things that have been infecting us that mm. freedom. And then they'll sprinkle some fun. Here's some, here's some debauchery, which I know you love. Here's some twerking ass N-word loving liquor here. Uh, we'll, we'll dress up Jay-Z, but we know what he started. So yay, yay. We and love at, him. He's your leader. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, here's Kanye, you know, come on. No. No, but 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 let, let's let's think about it. Okay, so this is again, again, inspiration, inspired. John Adams Hyman, the first black congressman out of what they call the Black Second. There was a book. I think Eric Anderson wrote the book on North Carolina, early book. He actually started a seminar paper for John Hope Franklin many years ago, and he wrote a book called on North Carolina's second congressional district called the Black Second. Because what they did was we talk about cracking and packing. During Reconstruction, what the white boys in North Carolina did, the White Nationalist Party of North Carolina, which at that time was housed in the Democratic Party, as you said, they were able to gerrymander and pack the second so that they could restrict it to one Republican district. And of course, it was black. But here's what happened. John Hyman said, I'm going to run for office. As you said, here's a guy who went through enslavement, sold nine times. The eight after he got sold the first time. And the reason he got sold was that the same guy who gave him the spelling book sold him. Why? Because public pressure, once they found out, or oh, you gave him a spelling book, oh, he got to go. So, I mean, again, white allies, I mean, God bless uh, Jane Elliott. But anyway, uh, the point is that white allies still, you're going to pick your whiteness of your life. Now, she has picked her life and you know, done okay. Like uh, Tim Wise, who we went to high school together, Hillsborough. You can do well while doing good if you're white in America, even when you truth telling. But the point is this: the you know we got to stay like this. We get everything but the burden. <laughs> so at any rate, again, which is why we want all the allies we have, but never forget, as Steve Biko said in South Africa, black people, you on your own. <laughs> so um, after he comes out of enslavement, 1865, he comes back, as you say, to North Carolina, gets involved. First in the Freedmen's Conventions, 1866, and then in 1867, and then 1868, as you say, he is in the Constitutional Convention. That was the last time the United States of America probably had a shot at staying something other, being something other than the state that's going to dissolve. That was the last time. Because they were literally writing state constitutions to enshrine human rights. As you went through the list, public education, access to the ballot for everybody, you know, Hyman and them and these black folk who came out of enslavement in North and South Carolina and all these places, the Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, Louisiana, they were not trying to impose black rule. But of course, whiteness wanted to preserve its whiteness. And so, you know, when you mentioned, you know, John Hyman, of course, I went to the stacks and most of my stuff's in storage. But fortunately, one of the pieces that wasn't was Eric Foner's little book, Freedom's Lawmakers which talks about this, and the Black Second, which talks about this. And of course, we talked about uh, Dr. Helen Edmonds many, uh, many, many episodes ago, maybe even close to two years ago, when we talked about Wilmington, because she wrote about that, you know, who she taught for many years at North Carolina Central University, Go Eagles, and you Eagles are out there. But at any rate, to, not to get too, too far, to, to what you're raising in terms of the fact that Marion Barry was not the preferred candidate because class cleavages had already emerged. Well, when Hyman decides he's going to run for Congress, out of that second, the black second, the first people try to stop him is the white, Democrat, uh, white Republicans. So the white Republicans are able to get a congressperson in for that first term. And that first term, which ends, I guess, in maybe 1865, 
65, 66, you know, two-year terms. He's just basically a failure. He don't do nothing for nobody. So Hyman runs again. And this time when Hyman runs, there are blacks who want to run. In fact, Hyman only serves one term in Congress before another black person comes in. And when he does win in the black second, the white uh, Democrat, uh, the white nationalists in the Democratic Party start talking about see how they fighting over there in the Republican Party. They don't really, you know, they're not serious, and uh, th they know that you can't vote for a Negro, so they try to peel off white Republicans to vote for the Democrat. And although he wins the election in eighteen sixty seven, I guess sixty six for the Congress in eighteen sixty seven, while he wins the election with like sixty percent of the vote, he's got to fight potential white defectors from the uh, Democrat, from the Republican Party. He's got to fight the white nationalists who are all in the Democratic Party. And he's also got to battle back some of these black folk who have come out of enslavement, just like him, including the guy who comes after him, um, who eventually takes that seat from him, who are aspiring too. So these politics aren't that different. Aren't that different then as, as what they are now. People are attempting to navigate a system that is set up to suppress people. Now, Hyman, who only makes it to 1851, uh, I'm sorry, 1851, 1891, he was 51 when he made transition. Hyman, when he is defeated, oh, by the way, while he was in Congress, he did the best he could. He introduced legislation to um, get resources to the Cherokee people of North Carolina who were being displaced to the western part of the state. He introduced legislation that died in committee that was attempting to get all those black people who lost their money in the Freedmen's Bank because white speculators took that money and gambled with it. You know, they call it investing. But at any rate, <laughs> uh, Hyman introduced legislation to get for us to get our money back. It, it died in committee. And Hyman, at least as far as the congressional record can see, which is which is, you know, running testament, never gave a speech never gave a speech in the United States Congress. And his reputation is such that as remains, because he left very, very slight traces of footprints there in his one term in Congress, was that he was behind the scenes trying to work, trying to get some work done for us. And so he has virtually disappeared from history, but then so have all of them. So have all of those uh, freedoms lawmakers, unfortunately, except for a handful. But um, it's interesting because he was replaced by a guy named um, uh, McAdams. I think McAdams was had legal training. He was one of five black folk with legal training. The the dean of that congressional delegation during the period of Reconstruction and, and immediately after was, of course, John Mercer Langston, who had been enslaved in Virginia, who was the first dean of Howard's Law School. Who, when the white trustees at Howard decided he couldn't be the president after he had run the place for a year and a half after the last white president had resigned. Then Mercer Langston is brought over from the law school and he runs Howard University for a year and a half. But then they decide, well, he ain't fit to be the president of the university permanently. Fred Douglas was hot because he was on trustee board at the time. But Langston was a lawyer. Langston goes back to Virginia after they don't want him at Howard Law, runs for office and comes back to D.C. as a congressman. And the best I could uh, research based on the records available, and it seems pretty solid, you know, Hyman ends up coming to D.C. himself. Because when he loses the congressional seat, he goes back to what he was doing before he ran for office in the first place, which was farming. He's a farmer. 
by training. He opened a business, had had a couple of businesses. And uh, but then eventually he relocates to D.C. for a time to Maryland for a time. And then uh, he, he makes transition in North Carolina. He's buried there. But his story and there was a moment when enticed by the possibility of some benefits for himself and maybe some room to operate in North Carolina, which is increasingly racist. Because understand Reconstruction is oh Reconstruction ended in the election of 1876. And by 18, no, these white boys never, never accepted defeat. So just like the January 6th commission is here doing what it's doing, go back in time to the only time the United States, the best time the United States had for becoming something other than what it is, which is the reconstruction period, which is why I joined with my friends at the Zen education program and, and who are, who have this mounted this teach reconstruction campaign for the last four or five years, have developed all these materials. I encourage you all to look them up. But at any rate, what you see is that white nationalism and capitalism never accepts defeat. They just regroup. And so from the end of the Civil War to through the end of Reconstruction, they're clawing it back. That's why in North Carolina, even though John Adams Hyman is able, along with other Black folk in North Carolina and white folk who are committed to a different society, are able to claw some power in North Carolina, these white boys in the so-called Democratic Party almost immediately start clawing it back. That's why there was only one Republican in Congress. And that Republican in the Black Second District was the representative. And many times, whether it be Hyman, whether it be McAdams that comes after him, whether it be later on George White, who ended up being the last person of African descent for decades to be in the United States Congress. Remember, he's the one who, uh, when he's the last one there and he's lost his election of 1900, he gives that final, final speech and say, yeah, our people in 1901, it says, yeah, our people have been uh, expelled from this legislature, but we will return like a phoenix from the ashes, which becomes the motto generations later of the Congressional Black Caucus. Of course, when we see John uh, Conyers, oh, well, before John Conyers in the 60s, and uh, there is, what's the brother's name, the, the, the undertaker, uh, well, he was, his family's in the funeral business, who was at Emmett Till's funeral. I see his face. He too was from Detroit. Diggs, Charles Diggs, Charles Diggs. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, Coleman Young, a state level, and then the mayor, he stays in the state of Michigan, but Diggs, then Conyers. But in the generation before that, in the 1930s, you have Mitchell uh, out of Chicago um, and the other brother who will come to me, somebody in Newby will put it in the chat um, there too, because the, what you see is then the move becomes a move from Republican Party to the Democratic Party, because of course the election in 1932, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, the national level, depression is in when the United States is in the throes of the depression and the Republican party, whether it houses the white nationalist party or not has always been since its inception in the 1850s, the party of business, the party of the interest of business. And of course, slavery was bad for business. So the abolitionists could use the Republican party, but the Republican party was less concerned with enslavement and more concerned with how enslaved labor was affecting the economy or, or, or lack thereof in terms of growth, the westward expansion. So by the 1930s, the Republican Party, remember, this is the party of Herbert Hoover, Lily White Republicanism, laissez-faire politics, leave business alone. This is also the period of the Lochner Court. We start talking about the Supreme Court, but we're not going to do that today. What you see is that Black folk who are now migrated from the South in another wave of migration where they end up in Chicago, they end up in Detroit, they end up in New York, you begin to see them voting not solid Republican. Because the Republican Party is no longer the party of Lincoln like it was. It ain't the white nationalist party yet. 
it's still got some decades to go for that. It's going to take a whole civil rights movement to drive the white, all the white nationalists, many of them anyway, hard white nationalists, out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. But eventually there are enough black people in these northern places to bring to the federal legislature some black folk who are now representing the Democratic Party. Because in the wake of the Great Depression, you see this migration. Adam, Adam Powell, of course, of New York being the most prominent. But uh, Arthur Mitchell, is it Arthur Mitchell? Yeah, out of Chicago. Oh, if I get quiet for a minute. Oscar the Priest. Oscar the Priest was the Republican. <clears throat> and then Mitchell replaces him. I believe that's the, the sequence if I had, I had to stop and, and, and think about it. But out of Chicago. So Chicago and New York are going to see that pioneering. And then, but anyway, I went through all that to say that the story of John Adams Hyman, which has virtually disappeared from even the history of uh, Black Congress people is a story of trying to negotiate the terrain that is rugged and ragged and ragged, right? I mean, it's ragged and you have to make some choices. The Democrats in North Carolina who house the white nationalist party basically have a stranglehold on a number of political levers, whether it be the state legislature, the congressional delegation, and for a brief moment, <clears throat> Hyman tried to come back to Congress in 1878. He lost the Republican nomination. Uh, he then, as you said, education being very, very near and dear to him, he was the Sunday school superintendent in the CME church in his hometown, uh, the colored Methodist Episcopal, as they called it then. Now it's the Christian Methodist Episcopal. So he was always interested in education. Uh, he had lived in, he, then he moved to DC. He lived in Richmond. He lived in Maryland, but there was a brief moment when he switched parties to the democratic party. Cause it looked like he might have some space to operate a little bit more space to operate over there. Martin Delaney did something similar in South Carolina. He said, why are you doing that? I said, cause they got all the levers of power. You, we hear that argument to this day in terms of black folk trying to negotiate, but I'm saying all that to say that, um, the impossible situation, it looks impossible to us today. There's a lot to learn from the impossible situations of previous years. And so rather than just hold these figures up as interesting people, what we're doing, and thank you for opening the way today, is using these figures, using these figures to rebuild the momentum of memory so that we can recognize what role politics should play, what role politics should play in us trying to build some power, trying to recover, trying to institution build, and also learn some exemplars on how we have reacted, those with some visibility, to impossible circumstances. You know, when you mentioned John Hyman, I just happened, I, I, I picked this up um, a couple of weeks ago. This is um, very interesting. This is H.C. Bruce. This is a reprint of his book, The New Man. 29 years of slave, 29, 29 years of free man. The recollections of H.C. Bruce. H.C. Bruce is the brother, and he's writing from Washington, D.C. when he publishes this in 1895. H.C. Bruce is the brother of Blanche Kelso Bruce. We know Blanche Kelso Bruce and Hiram Rebels were the first two black United States senators out of Mississippi. And he talks about moving around Missouri, Virginia, because he's born in Virginia, Ohio, escaping enslavement, talking about enslavement. And one of the fascinating things to me I thought was fascinating in this book, he says 
um, after talking about how he was born March 3rd, um, 1836, as the date of his birth, after talking about enslavement and how most people of African descent cannot remember when they were born, so they don't have birth, they don't have birth certificates, they can't remember. But he talks then about how growing up in enslavement, there were pleasant memories he had alongside the bad ones. It gets real complicated. I'm like, damn, dude, really? This is crazy. He talks about his first memories being 1841, when his mother was hired to a lady, Miss Ludy Waddell by name. Miss Rebecca Bruce married Mr. Pettis Perkinson, and soon after her slaves were taken to their new home then known as the Rowlett Place, at which point we began a new life. It is but simple justice to Mr. Perkinson to say that though springing from a family known in that part of the country as hard taskmasters, he was himself a kind and considerate man. His father had given him some 10 to 12 slaves, among whom were two boys about my own age. As we were quite young, we were tenderly treated. Guess what? He's learning how to read. He's learning how to remember what happens to Fred Douglas. When the white woman's teaching him how to read and her husband comes in and says, hold on, if you give them an inch, they'll take an L, in other words, a mile. But in H.C. Bruce's case, he's getting literate while in enslavement. The man was 29 years he's been enslaved. And when you read his story, it's quite complicated. And I'm saying that we live in a system that is absurd, that is impossible. And the one consistent uh, theme in it as it relates to us is we will always be set upon as an object of other people's interests. Well, can we use them for profit? Because that's why we brought them here. That's why their ancestors were brought here. Can we continue to, to push them so that we can make profit from them? It's no different in the time of John Adams, Bruce and um, John, John Adams, Hyman and H.C. Bruce as it is today in that regard. Now, so much else has changed. but. You know, when you raise this 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 question of what can we do? Well, we're doing it in part in this space, and, and and we're not new in this. We are adapting on our feet to the circumstances we are presented with. Um, COVID nineteen being the immediate prompt for us being virtual, and with every day, every day that I leave here and move around. With every day, that decision just looks stronger and stronger and stronger. As I said, as you mentioned, and I want to kind of use this as a not as a pivot, but to continue in this conversation about what can we do and how what role does education and literacy play? Realizing that I'm not beating up on anybody. I'm not beating up on Issa Rae. I'm not beating. No, no, we are we are kin. We are family. And like like you mentioned with Nick, I don't care whether it's Nick or Issa Rae or any of these people. You know who are who are who are hyper in the social structure eye you can't ride that tiger i mean you can perhaps siphon resources that you may have access to to support those maroon spaces but those spaces that the social structure created can never be maroon spaces and when it comes to the professional managerial class they know that so a great deal of what comes off as advocating for us no matter the intent this isn't a question of it challenging people's intent is like to use Aikwe uh, Armaz metaphor in his novel 2000 seasons it's like pouring spring water into the desert 
you can't reform that space. And the best you can do is perhaps when that social structure is, is, is afraid that it's going to either collapse or be eroded, the best you can do is advocate for a few more of your friends in the professional managerial class, which then the uh, social structure we find ourselves in will use almost as a safety valve. And that only works if we continue to imagine that people who look like us in those spaces who sound like they're advocating for African people who are in fact advocating for black people are somehow making a difference. And that is an open conversation I think we need to have, but ultimately they're not going to make a difference in a system that has to have the vast majority of people in that system disadvantaged. It has to do it. So of course, by definition, it cannot open up to a different kind of society. And the idea that somehow by banging on it, you can transform it in the way that you're trying to transform it with the best of intentions, with genius analysis and all this, it's like, yeah, that's not going to work. And Here's where it gets even int more interesting, and I'm going to come back to where I, was, where I was going with this. The fact, you know, how, how striking is it that speaking, writing, presenting, cultural text and practice creating has now increasingly turned to saying exactly that. This system can't be fixed. This system is racist. This system is sexist. This system is, yeah. So even a cat like Jordan Peele, you make a movie, <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, but you're saying nope, but all the money going to Hollywood. Is that nope or yeah? That, sure. I mean, now they can even make money off nope. <laughs> it's like, because nothing is going to change. They may even give you a couple of statues, which will reinforce the Stockholm Syndrome. But so, how do we break out of it? Well, we break out of it the same way we've been breaking out of it. John Adams Hyman sold to Alabama, sold to enslavement in Alabama by the guy who gave him the spelling book because he'd been pressed on by his friends in the social structure to get rid of this guy. You can't stop education. Now, I'm not saying that, well, let me let me just stop there. I'm, I was going, you know. Well, yeah, I will say this is why we calling this the renewed normal. Literacy cannot, must not stop with mastering the cultural genealogies, the intellectual arcs, the momentum of memory that isn't of African descent. You must ground yourself. We must ground ourselves. We must ground ourselves in our long arc of memory and it doesn't start with the trauma of enslavement so learning english learning french learning spanish learning dutch learning portuguese in the ways that these formal institutions these institutions and social structure have kind of carved them out has a purpose but it cannot be the anchoring and centering purpose this again kind of engenders in some ways the class conflicts we see the vast majority of our people who don't go to universities who you know, have been kind of socialized to value education, but at the same time have contempt for people who then take that type of education, institutional education, and try to use it to say, I'm your leader, I'm your better. That engenders a kind of resentment because the things never change. I mean, again, thinking about Nick, we had this conversation many times. Nick saying, you know, people I'm, you know, interacting with are saying, you know, why, why vote? Nothing ever changes. And so we read Dick Gregory, uh, we read 
a number of things on voting. And then he brought in his friend Angela Ryan. They had a debate. You know what I'm saying? I, I will participate. Why? Because even though I know neither of you have studied this to this degree, I know she's done a lot more work than you. Hadn't it? But the fact is, you got the platform, you bring them in, we had a debate. Then more people who would not vote might say, well, maybe this will change my mind. And I realized there's, it's messy. It's so messy because there's no, there's no correct path that we can just trace out. And there are levels to this. But at any rate, COVID, as I said, now come back to where I, where I was going. COVID paused the world in a way. Well, for the majority of the world, it didn't pause because most people couldn't afford to be inside. They had to work. But what it did was disrupt the way we had gone through life. And so for over a year, we, many of us were hostages in place, even as we continued to work, thereby burning off the illusion that physical movement was necessary for this capitalist system to continue to work. And it teetered on that. In some ways, it will never recover because the changes were accelerated. And we've talked about this a number of times. But very specifically in terms of what we're doing, not trying to do, what we are doing at this point and what we have done and continue to do and it's just getting stronger, we are anchored in this space where we are collectively and I hesitate to use this word, but I'm going to use it because it's a parlance in the time and space we're in right now. We're crowdsourcing. The brick metaphor you, you use, Prof, we're bringing each other together. We're coming together with each other and we're thinking through things and then taking that thought and plowing it into our daily behavior, clustering in different formations. I mean, watching Uraeus at Comic-Con. I've never been to Comic-Con. The closest I got was walking through the crowd at the Javits Center on the way home in, in New York and seeing all these people in costumes. And I'm a comic book collector. I'm like, man, that's too much for me. But you're raising Carl out there, live streaming, and it's in Nubia. I can go to the Comic-Con and they find all the black people. So now people I'm reading, people I'm in conversation with, and you bring John Jennings in. We were talking about Octavia Butler and all them cats together in San Diego. And I, and I ain't got to go because you're raising, now there's a platform in Nubia where daily and, and 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 several times a day he's dropping stuff in and here's the live stream from here here's the black heroes matter panel here's where all of us come together here's what i'm doing with jason wise here's the booth where i'm signing with wow wow and here's what we're going to bring all the people in damian duffy and all them the founders of milestone comics i just came from the comic store and 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 picked up the latest milestone stuff but now they're all there and now we got a point of entry so the whole frame has changed that didn't exist not even a year ago, but it exists now and it's and it's exploding. I'm saying all that to say that as the world begins to draw upon our physical labor, trying to claw its way back to that system where they can manage how we move through the world physically. And I went out last week, this week, to campus because, as you say, Prof, you know, summer school, college summer school is not something I ever did. I'm always with high school students in the summer through the year too, but in the summer, hardcore, but, um, and other people in community organizations, you know, this kind of thing, but especially high school students, I'm with them. But I agreed to do these two classes along with Dr. Beatty, Mario Beatty and Belithia Watkins and uh, Josh Myers, the four of us, we, we put together a class for two groups of students at the request of our colleagues in the athletic department, because they wanted every freshman who was going to play sports for Howard University, football, basketball, volleyball, women and men, so the women volleyball players, basketball players right alongside the men, 
to have an introduction to Africana States course. So you know, I agreed. I said, yeah, we'll do it for you. So we 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 do that in the month of July. And then there's something that was called the Bison STEM Scholars, uh, the Karsh Scholars. The Karsh family gave some money, so they changed the name. Um, but these are young people, a cohort of just a little over 30, they're in their sixth year now, who uh, are very high achievers in the so-called STEM fields, but also have, you know, other interests, a, a wide range of interests. And they wanted them to have a similar course. So we do a course for them. And so we uh, the first week we all together and then each of us takes a subsequent week and then we come back together at the end of the course. So we will end the course next week together. Um, after Dr. Watkins finishes what she's going to do. But this was my week for just me and them after the first week. And so rather than do the thing that would have been more convenient for me, having worn out equipment, including this creaky chair, which I actually had at the beginning of the pandemic and now it's about to fall apart. I'm sitting in it so much. Hour after hour after hour after hour and probably a hundred thousand note cards because I just took the writing note cards. So the whole arc of what happened during COVID is written in uh, these note cards, which just stack up and now are stacked. I got these little filing cabinets and that's how I know it's over a hundred thousand because each one of these things, I think, holds ten thousand, uh, a thousand cards and many of these stacks in these files. But at any rate, the convenient thing to me would been to switch on the camera. And then I can go back to what I was doing before, after meetings, you know, reading, doing work. But no, I said, no, nah, I'm going to go up there. As old folks say, I'm going to go up to the school. So I went up to the school. And the metaphor I liken it to in some ways, it was wonderful with, to be with the young people. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing them again next week. And then there were elements of it that were like, I remember when I stopped eating pork and then it'd be like not eating pork for 10 years and then getting a rib sandwich, pork rib. You'd be like, oh, oh man. And you realize I shouldn't have been eating this in the first place. And you realize the wear and tear, you realize the, the challenges of infrastructure and all this stuff that came flooding back. And I said, this is a real blessing. Let me sit in this. But I'm bringing it up to say that as I was on campus, and some ran to some colleagues I hadn't seen since March 2020. It's the first physical class, in-person class I've taught since 2020. Now, 2020, I've taught thousands because, you know, I average between, you know, four and six hundred students uh, a, a semester, no, a year. And that's before, you know, that's not counting freshman seminar, which I don't have to do anymore. But so I've had classes all along. But in terms of being in person, my first time you know, in the classroom like that. And I'm running to colleagues who are like, yo, what y'all are doing on Saturdays within class and then now narrative and Nubia? They said, that really is the future. And I was like, no, no, it's the present. Because see what teachers know, what do we all know, we're being honest, is that two things, number one, the university system, most of our people never go in there. The K-12 system is beset with all these challenges. That's, that's, that's number one. And number two, we're not going back to the way it was. Now, there will be an approximation of the way it was, but even sitting there, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to see these young people and sit with them, 
And we're spending three hours a day in each class, three hours with the student athletes, three hours with the STEM students. So I'm sitting there and we're going through the materials. I had them do readings and we're sitting there. It's really, you know, there's something about that in-person thing that really can't be replaced in some ways, including by parenthetically, shout out to all my young football, basketball, volleyball players at Howard University, these young people. Let me tell you why. The last day we were together this week, we were in Frederick Douglass Hall. Uh, we had to find a place for air conditioning and, and strong internet because the room we were in before wasn't. I said, come on, y'all, y'all athletes. Let's pay. I'm an old man. If I pass out, somebody take me down to the hospital. Let's walk up this hill. So we, boom, packed our stuff up, walked up the hill, went into Douglas Hall, found a room big enough for us. Now we set up everything. We continued to work. But as we are working, you see some small children walking um, in the hall outside our room. And I could see these young people, the, the, the students were looking at me. I'm looking over their heads. I see these young people. I said, who are those kids? I mean, I'm talking about little kids. They're maybe seven, eight, nine years old and three adults, a woman, a man, and a woman and two men. So one of the brothers, one of the football players, he opened the door, asked them. He said, that the car, they said, they're just walking through they they on a tour. I said, oh, they have a tour guide? No. Were they just walking in the buildings? Yeah. I said, tell them, come in. I said, no, that's cool. Let me go. So I'll walk to the back. That's what y'all doing. Come to find out these young people are D.C. residents. And they were just coming on campus to look around. The young, the children, most of them had never been on campus. It's probably about maybe 20 young people and, and their chaperones and kind of leaders of the program. We came in there. They came in. And I said, I'm not going to say anything. I want y'all, you know, y'all work this out. Uh, and I, I introduced myself to the brother who was the leader of the group. And I said, do you mind introducing them or having them introduce themselves? And I'm just going to sit back and see what happens. And as I told the young people after these these children left, there's nothing like having children around for students to get a sense of what we're grappling with in terms of education. One by one, those children introduced themselves. Turns out they were in a sports program. And they came on campus. They went to Bowie State University. They went to a couple of other HBCUs around. And, you know, University of District of Columbia is in D.C., but they came to Howard to look around and they just happened to come in the building or so it seemed, I think it's all ancestral. This is actually on Ron Walter's birthday, which is crazy because we ran a, a classroom that Dr. Walters taught in, taught in many times in Douglas Hall. His office was in Douglas Hall in political science. And then the young people, my students started introducing themselves, their name, where they were from, what sport they played. And those children's eyes started lighting up. And I think this was the littlest boy in there six seven years old he said he a linebacker <laughs> so one of the brothers who plays linebacker freshman i'm a linebacker so then he said you know what the brother who was with them said why don't y'all talk to these young people so then they we spent the better part of an hour they were just talking to these to these young people to me but not children the children talking to the young people the students and I went through all that to say that, you know, I was listening to, you know, Roland Martin has been in Birmingham all week with the Southwestern Athletic Conference, the SWAC. And Deion Sanders, of course, is the jewel of the SWAC. And he's talking about it, how they, you know, the SWAC is going to change and how we got to grab all these opportunities and how some of these HBCU traditions, we just need to discard them. And so, you know, Roland played the interview. Then he came back to us. We were on our Thursday night panel with uh, um, Erica Savage and, of course, Reese Colbert. And he said, you know, what do y'all think? He asked me first. I said, I'm not sure what I just saw. Clearly, Deion Sanders doesn't know much about HBCU culture, but it's not because he don't want to. It's not because he ain't trying to do the best thing. But let's talk a little bit about what it means to say HBCU culture, because 
you know, these white boys will pluck Jackson State. They might end up getting Gremlin or, or FAM, and, you know, A&T is already going to a white conference. And my alma mater, Tennessee State, went to one decades ago, which we fought like hell when we were students. But I went through all that to say that I said, what can't be replicated is what I saw in my classroom with these young freshman athletes, student athletes, and these children whose lives these young people will never know how they impacted just because they spent an hour with them in a, in a moment of serendipity. But in terms of education and us, the question is not just one of acquiring skills, the ability to read or write, the ability to do rocket science for that matter, the ability to learn this, the latest business techniques or learn how to code. It's also the culture. It's also the grounding. And John Adams Hyman didn't have the challenge of understanding the value of acquiring the skills. Now, the circumstances he came out of enslavement certainly could have shaped him in a way that the trauma anchored the way he moved through the world. Clearly it didn't any more than it did H.C. Bruce. But those circumstances did yield some challenging perspectives on how to advance us. For, for, for Hyman, it was politics. For Bruce, business, politics, education. But their perspectives are shaped by their experiences. Now, let's think about this as we kind of wind today to a, a moment of, of pause for the week. And I'm going to kind of bring all this together in a way that kind of makes sense. If, you know, I think we can. What do you do when you're faced with an impossible situation? Um, here being Rakim, what do you do in a situation like this? Special mix. <laughs> in other words, what do you do in an absurd social structure, which is not just predatory, not just exploitative, but is structured on dehumanization, structured on structural hierarchy, which will do anything to perpetuate itself. If we have to buy a cosplay coal miner out of West Virginia to make sure that even if you get close enough to having a federal legislature that might intervene on uh, global warming, we have bought that uh, cosplay coal miner in West Virginia and he his instructions are to stop you by any means necessary. I'm working on a bill. I agree with this bill. Okay, time to vote. I don't agree with this bill. What the hell? What the hell? Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. My job is to stop you. Y'all keep acting like I'm a, you know, which, no, my job, I'm with them. My job is to stop you. So, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that if you're living in a system, what do you do in a situation where the hierarchy is, it depends for its perpetuation on your exploitation. Well, it's gonna require a special mix. Now, we're talking about a social structure that does that. We're talking about people of African descent in this very specific sense. So in the second category, our African states uh, framework is the governance structure category, which asks who are African people to each other. And that governance structure category is really built out of the other categories that follow it, the four other ones, ways of knowing, which what, what ways of understanding reality, understanding the world and understanding each other have African people generated and created in the moments we're studying. And whether, whether it be those who came out of enslavement, John Adams Hyman or H.C. Bruce or anybody who came out of enslavement, what ways of knowing did they generate? Because what you see is a nascent kind of class of black people 
who are acquiring skills that are usually reserved for the social structure they found themselves in, but at the same time, acquiring those skills also engenders a sense of separation from the vast majority of Black folk. The ancestors of, for example, those who are now uh, being portrayed to a caricatured form in things like uh, um, um, this rap SHIT thing, you know, that we see in HBO. I mean, these are the folk who aren't in the institutions. So that way of all those ways of knowing are accurate in terms of depicting these range of black ways of knowing, but they are things that are going to have to be debated in the governance category. Who are we to each other? Because we're going to need a special mix to survive and even thrive despite this social structure and ultimately to try to change the social structure itself because the species is at risk. And in science and technology, what are our ways of conveying it? One of the reasons you want to acquire literacy is to intervene in the technologies of the moment. The technologies of the 19th century and the reconstruction are, among other things, in terms of policymaking, uh, bills and, and policy and, and, and going to court and arguing. Well, you're going to need literacy for that to acquire. You're going to need to acquire that technology. Literacy is a form of technology, whether it be the written word on a pennant page or on the internet, whether it be the written word between the pages of a book or moving images. And people say, well, we can, we, we don't have to write a book. I mean, we could just put it in a movie. Nah, the technology matters. Technology matters. When you surrender the page, you have surrendered something that you created as African people at the beginning of human social organization. Inscription systems, don't, don't surrender that inscription system. Because the consequences could be devastating. Because guess what? There are clusters of people in the world who will never surrender the uh, inscription systems, even as they're telling you, you don't need them. So obviously, as I always say, when I was in these curriculum meetings, when I was working in school district of Philadelphia and I was doing administrative meetings, I'm in there and people will come with the latest curriculum thing for our children. I'm like, that's great. That's fantastic. I only got two questions. Number one, do you have children? If the answer is yes. Number two, is this what they're doing? Then it get real quiet. Right, because you're experimenting on our children and we're not going to have that. So whether it be not just ways of knowing, not just science, technology, but those last two categories, movement and memory, as we're moving through time and space, how do we remember the key moments that will help us build the momentum of memory? Because the social, all the social structure want to know about Jack Roosevelt Robinson is that on this day in 1962, 60 years ago today, Jack Roosevelt Robinson was enshrined in the white Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. But for the governance structure, we want to know who he is to us. Well, his mama made sure, like Peebles' mama, that his steps were guided. His brother Max's steps were guided. His family's steps were guided when they ended up out of Georgia into Pasadena, California. And they went to school and they got their lesson and he came out of UCLA and he went on and was a military officer to they court martialed him. But for him, he spent his life and his wife, Rachel, who just passed 100 years old, she, you know, was honored at the All-Star Game last week. You know, they have the Jackie Robinson Foundation, whose meeting actually is uh, next week in New York. Shout out to Rachel Robinson. Shout out to Sharon Robinson, their daughter. Shout out to everybody at the Jackie Robinson, the Jack Roosevelt Robinson Foundation, because they send Robinson scholars to the schools of this country, including many of the HBCUs. I've had many Robinson scholars over the years. Education being a value. Who is he to us? He's not a ball player to us. 
He's a man who parlayed some resources into helping our people. So that movement and memory category, which asks how did or do people of African descent remember a moment, that is not to be confused with how the social structure narrates it because they will stick Jackie Robinson on a damn ball field for eternity, swinging a bat. And if they want to make a concession, they'll say, well, yeah, he also was a champion for civil rights. Yeah, but when you talk about his son, David, who has been back and forth between East Africa and the rest of the world, including the United States for decades as a businessman trying to engender black power through, uh, through, uh, through building institutions that support us, not just support us in the United States, but support us globally. And of course, finally, cultural meaning making in the particular moment you're studying what music, what art, what texts and practices did or do African people create in that moment to mark that time and space for the reconstruction era, the era of John Adams Hyman, the, the era of Blanche Kelso Bruce, the brother of H.C. Bruce and so many others, they would make the posters. Remember the famous posters of Joseph Rainey and Elliot and the man, Robert Smalls and them sitting up as the first congressman and the first wave of Congress people coming out of re the Reconstruction era of African descent into the federal legislature. These things occupy a place of honor in black homes. Uh, this week in, in, in my classes, we showed images. I was showing them images from Kerry James Marshall, the artist, and contrasting them with Kehinde Wiley, the artist, who is coming out of his own particular time and space, who come out of uh, similar and also very different genealogies and ideas about what blackness is. And we talked about that and debated that and discussed that. It's a bunch of 18-year-olds. That's a bunch of 18-year-olds, meaning what? For most of them, the first time they saw those artists, so I didn't just play Queen Latifah. I didn't just play some Beyonce. I didn't just play some Black Thought, Thought versus Everybody. Let me drop some Cherry James Marshall in here. Let me drop some Charles White in here. Let me drop some Kehinde Wiley in here. Let's drop some Amy Sherald in here. Let's have a conversation around images because these are examples of cultural meaning making. Who are the famous artists of this period? Who are the ones who have impacted this period? And when we look at their art, are they bringing the momentum of memory, going back to that fifth category, movement and memory, how did or do African people remember experiences? Kerry James Marshall is good for that. I mean, sitting there working through his art, you, these young people, the ideas are just sparking and you see them just like opening up and you hear them and we're having this debate and conversation, but what is being engendered is a sense of the momentum of memory, the momentum of memory. And that's what we're gonna need ultimately, whether it be cultural meaning making, movement and memory, science and technology, ways of knowing. We empty that into the governance question. Who are we to each other? And so we find ourselves creating that special mix. What do you do in a situation like this? Special mix. You got to come up with an improvisational grounding in yourself so that as you engage the social structure, as you engage the rest of the world, you can do so standing in yourself and not standing at a self you've had to create a renewed normal because the normal thing for humans to do is to create out of themselves, even collectively to do that in terms of culture, you have created a place to stand to engage the world. And as you do that, there is an, now we have a best opportunity to change the world. We can't change it as long as we are a figment of other people's imagination. As long as the we we talk about is a we that is defined in a social structure for whom we are a demographic. That's why the professional managerial class can be said to represent us, because when they say us, what they mean is the demographic, black buying power, black political power. There is no such thing if you're only defining blackness by counting the number of people you have, des you have designated as being black. 
But while you're trying to engender a we, while you're trying to build a special mix, while you're trying to do that, there is a perpetual assault from a social structure that has no interest in you doing that. They just looking at the market. They just looking at the demographic. If Insecure had failed, there would be no rap shit. We're, we're counting numbers. Who's going to be able to attract eyeballs? And we think we can get more eyeballs with yes, <laughs> stop, stop, than we can get with no. Put another image there. Ain't nobody going to watch that. And if they do start watching it, Lovecraft Country, and it gets too unsettling, possibly, to the social relations, we'll just pull it. No explanation necessary. So you do care what the content is. Yeah, we care what the content is if it's going to unsettle the way we have you in this hierarchy. But I'm surely you've seen the cultural meaning making that you might call rap, S-H-I-T. Surely you've seen that before. Yeah, I did. It's called Amos and Andy in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. In the 1930s, it was Mantan Moreland and uh, Stephen Fetcher. Yeah, I did. It was the minstrel shows of the 19th century. Yeah, I did. It was Jim Crow in the 1840s and 50s. Yeah, I did. It was the plantation dancing. It was, you know, y'all go get drunk. And Yeah, I did. It was called uh, Dancing on the Slave Decks of the Slave Ships. Yeah, I did. Wait, I didn't see it before then. No, why? Because we were standing in our own humanity. Dance for me. Yeah, I'm going to dance. I'm gonna dance over here to this uh to this machete and cut your whole head off. You better get up out of my face, or to use the common parlance, you better shut up talking to me. Uh. But at any rate, the point is that that whole thrust siphoned into a social structure that sees us as a demographic is never going to engender the type of special mix we need in a governance formation to stand in the world and intervene in that world, not only on our behalf but on behalf of our common humanity. So this week, I was just reminded of the range, the range, because every generation, this is where going back to the um, movement and memory category for a moment. Remember, the movement and memory category asks, how did or do African people remember these experiences? Not how did or do other people remember these experiences for the benefit of a social structure that sees us as a demographic. Or that sees us, if not even as just as a demographic, sees us as somehow beholding to a structure that is a hierarchy that keeps us oppressed? <laughs> well, again, asking the movement and memory categories, a new book that just came out. Uh, just got my copy a couple of days ago. It's called Our Kind of Historian. Who is we? Our Kind of Historian, The Work and Activism of Lerone Bennett Jr., E. James West. Uh, this completes, at least I hope it completes, a trilogy. The book that came out just before that, A House for the Struggle, The Black Press and the Built Environment in Chicago, James West. And the book that came out before that, the first of the three, Ebony Magazine and Lerone Bennett Jr., Popular Black History in Post-War America, E. James West. Now, I will read, just as I read the first two books, I'm going to read this one. I might read it cover to cover between now and Monday. Probably so. Uh, e. James West seems to be a fine historian. He's uh, at Northumbria University. Is he still at Northumbria University? No, he's at the University of York now, UK. He started, well, he was at North uh, Northumbria when he, he's a, he's a fellow at Northumbria when he wrote the first book. Hey, a lot of information in these books on Ebony Magazine, on Johnson Publications, and now Lerone Bennett, nothing to do. Nothing to do with the organic, ongoing intellectual thrust of what Lerone Bennett 
out of Mississippi, Clarksdale, Mississippi, out of Morehouse College, spent his life in Chicago and around the world as the senior editor of Ebony Magazine, Johnson Publications, nothing to do with the institution building work of the Rome Bennett of Johnson Publications. The mid book of the trilogy, A House for the Struggle, black people don't own that building no more in Chicago. You Chicago Negroes know that. Johnson Publication Building, been sold. This book, this, this building was built for the service of black people. Now, yes, the Johnson family did quite well. And let's be clear, you know, many of the material texts, the books, you know, my friend Theaster Gates, you know, got this stuff, some of that stuff anyway, on the South Side of Chicago up there, Stony Island's art, solely on Stony Island Arts Bank, a stone's throw from Mosque Maryam, Nation of Islam. But in terms of the images, all those photographs, when that is slat, not we talked about slat many times, you know, all these photographs, Getty got them. And they've curated some black academics out of the professional managerial class to uh, curate the collections. So then, now they just announced a, a few days ago that if you want to research these images, this huge collection, this archive, to use the parlance of my academic friends who really are, you know, a bit tiresome with using the word archive. But if you want to access this archive, it's free. They announced to the world, it's free. Just register with us. And so I went on to see. The cap is 500 images. You got to tell them what institution you're connected with and for what purposes you're going to use because it's got to be non-commercial purposes. Now, they built this institution for Black people and did well while they were doing good. But now, the autopsies. These are autopsies. You understand? What? Anderson Thompson used to call slave rebellion research. And that's not a condemnation of Professor West. I'm glad he wrote them. I'll read them. But what I'm not going to do is look to them for the special mix because we are in the governance question. How do it free us informs our governance questions. Who are we to each other? And guess what? Guess what narrative in Nubia are? They are a direct descendant in the genealogy of Johnson Publications. Oh, we working on it. And we know we are. We're not alone. Oh, no, we're not alone. There's a network of bookstores feeding it. Sankofa being the one that I'm in most clear and constant organic relationship with. But it's not just Sankofa. All those bookstores are listed on narrative. Are we alone in doing that? Absolutely not. There's a whole Black Booksellers Association. Brother Troy and them bringing this together. There's Paul Coates, the printer and publisher, Black Classic Press. We There's Haki Booty with uh, Africa World Press, I mean, with, with, with Third World Press. There's Brother Kasahun Chikoli and, and Third World Press. And there are, I mean, Africa World Press. And that's global, too. And there are many, many others. But what we have in this space is a place where we can have a governance conversation. This is governance institution building which contributes to that formation of a place where we can think think we think through we and then act as we it's very important so these are social structure reports autopsies but they're only autopsies if we stay thinking we're dead so you've got the autopsy category and that's the most academic work the publishing work people have convinced themselves that somehow that work is contributing to freeing us. Well, it does free individual uses in terms of curiosity, in terms of desire to talk about this stuff. And as I said, 
it can be completely this system is white supremacist and it destroys stuff yeah and then go to a white university press and they give you some credit maybe an award you might even get tenure in one of these schools and it, that's beautiful now how do it free us well it freed me my family and i will come out and give y'all a lecture for a reduced price or maybe even free a couple of times a, a, a year and uh, that will free you how's that gonna free me because in looking at me you could become like me well i could see how i could add to the professional managerial class but that ain't what we interested in we want every because every human being got a story every human being has experiences and in a place like this what we've been talking about now for months particularly as we were reading through Barracoon we're doing a Hearst and, and uh and brother Aluye I mean uh brother Kasula Oluye who of course we know as the social structure would call Cujo Lewis we had long conversations about that including with members of his family on the importance of us convening our own memories listening to our elders and we've been joined by elders over and over again including last monday night again listening to our elders why our elders are not writing slave rebellion research our elders live those experiences and pass them on in an unbroken chain because the purpose of education the egyptians would say medu yahoo to make a staff of old age to train your replacement and rather than pay an absurd amount of tuition to go sit in an ancient Egyptian language class anywhere in the country, whether it be UCLA or Howard, you now come in the narrative. And for that little yearly subscription fee, you have a better metanetric class taught by Mario Betty, who's getting ready to head to the West Coast in a few days to take the anchor leg in a two month study of ancient Egypt taught by people from all over the world. Betty is taking the anchor leg. That's who he is in that world. But guess what? Who is he to us? He's our metanetra teacher, Uncle Jasaneb. I heard Uraeus say from the roof of the hotel where they stand for Comic Con. What are you doing that at? They doing that right here. What are you doing a situation like this? Special mix. <laughs> this is what we're doing now. The structure we are building must be distinguished from the structures that exist in the social structure. I don't care whether they're white or black. We had an incredible conversation. And again, I want to thank my man, Brother Smith, who is the uh, leader of the Car STEM Scholars every, uh, every summer for inviting us to continue in this work. You know, I, ne I never know when the rug might get pulled out underneath that. But then again, we're here. So again, as I even listened to my colleagues at Howard when I was up there, say, man, what y'all are doing? No, that's not what y'all are doing, what we are doing, because people I talk to are members. <laughs> maybe here today but at any rate the the conversation we had this was wednesday afternoon we we're having this conversation about the nature of the black university and we started talking about clout chasing the young people made that say you know our hbcus just clout chasing trying to become black versions of white schools and i said well it, aren't we all here clout chasing and the young lady who asked the question nodded her head i said me too Ain't we cloud chasing? Wasn't that the model? I said, how many of you all in this room, how many of you all were presented with Howard as one of the only HBCUs your family said you could go to? Two thirds of the hands went up. I said, what were the other ones? You want to guess, uh, Professor Hunter, as to what the other schools that they said, okay, you can't go to HBCU unless it's one of these. Morehouse, Spelman. Morehouse and Spelman. That's it. I mean, but to see these 18-year-olds, and you know what was crazy was, and this is after a week of reading, 
listening to music, viewing images, having some intense conversation. And, you know, some of these students, although born in the United States, their parents are from other places. This young brother who is Tigre, we had a whole conversation about the, the formation of modern Ethiopia and how Ethiopia really not a country. And I'm saying, I'm listening to this kid, like I got to get over here and meet highly because this is the conversation they're having across the street every day. It ain't over here, but it's over there. And I'm gonna take you over there. Why? Because it's complicated. We've had that conversation. Young people, oh man, all the young people from whose parents are from West Africa, the Nigerians and you know, Cameroon, you know, and we're talking about Mami Wata and Vodun and the difference between voodoo and hoodoo and the whole conversation around Akata and what it means to have culture and not have culture and where does Nollywood stuff come from? And just to see them light up because this is the first time for many of them in their lives that beyond their families and communities, that was brought into a, a, a space where it's tied to thinking and study. But that's what we do here, as we do every Monday night. Those are the conversations on uh, on tomorrow with Maroon's Medicine Chest. That's the stuff that Dr. Beatty is tying with the metanetra class, people are bringing their skills in, their experiences in, and learning these new things and having different kind of conversations. It's a special mix. So those institutional structures we're talking about, whether it be white schools or black schools, you have to be very careful about that. Very careful about the fact that this is not that. It is connected to that because we're connected to wherever our people are, whatever they're doing. But this is not that. This is a free space, this governance formation. It's very important to understand that. Now, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have this, well, no, let me not say that, let me not say it this way. Let me not say it that way, let me say it this way. If you don't have institutional spaces, this is where we'll stop for today, I think. If you don't have institutional spaces, you run the risk of really feeding people who, if there were institutional spaces, would look at the world very differently. What do I mean by that? We'll end where we begin with John Adams Hyman. John Adams Hyman came out of enslavement, came out of the traumas of enslavement. It fed his desire and aspiration for education in the social structure he found himself in. It fed his fierce determination to make a way not only for himself, but for his people. When he entered electoral politics in his native North Carolina, it may have shortened his life. He only made it to 51 years old, but he spent that life working in institution building. Out of the governance formation directly, he was uh, an officer, a, the Sunday school superintendent in his black church, the colored Methodist Episcopals. But the trauma of enslavement and how to react to it shaped the trajectory of his life. Fast forward to 2022. I just had a conversation with a professor at Brooklyn College and Cooney System, Cooney Graduate Center named um, Corey Robin. I've mentioned this book before, but I wanted to interview him and talk with him. So I did it for the Black Table. It's called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Corey Robin. Fascinating. We had an interesting conversation because Corey Robin his thesis is Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court of the United States is a black nationalist. And actually, no, 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 no. Let me be, let me be more precise about that because I'm a black nationalist. I'm a black internationalist, pan-Africanist to my DNA. Um, Robin says that what might be characterized as black nationalism as a circle, and then what will be characterized as conservatism, and he's really a scholar of uh 
political science, liberal politics, conservative politics. He's written several books on the question of conservatism uh, as, as an intellectual movement going back to the 16th century, 17th century. So when you start talking about Thomas Hobbes, you start talking about Tocqueville, even up into the 20th century, Hannah Arendt, when you start in, investigating the roots of modern so-called conservatism, he, he's really steeped in that. So he says, he said, I didn't start out to write a book on Clarence Thomas. Somebody wanted me to write something on African-American political thought, a chapter on Clarence Thomas. I didn't want to do it. They kind of pushed me into it. And then I started researching. So he and his research assistants read all of Clarence Thomas's opinions. This book was published in 2019, I think it was, right before the pandemic. Let me make sure. Yeah, 2019. So up into 2018, they read all the opinions. 700 and some opinions. And so they coded them, they interrogated them, they looked through them, they studied them. And so what you see is a philosophy where the black nationalist kind of formations that we might find in governance conversations we're having, there's this huge overlap with conservatism, social structure conservatism, and it is that overlap that Robin is studying. So when it comes to the Second Amendment, so Clarence Thomas is a nut about the Second Amendment. Yeah, but the roots of that come from growing up through the Black Power era, being not only uh, uh, someone who said Malcolm X, I really like Malcolm X. I read his stuff. I understand him. I mean, he had he has talked favorably about Louis Farrakhan as a young man. Um, he had, I mean, it's fascinating when you see what Clarence Thomas is writing. He, you know, he talks about the fact that, yeah, Black people need guns. Oh, yeah, black people need guns. Well, Clarence Thomas said black people need guns. Yeah, that's why he supports the Second Amendment. I got to get off with that. Yeah, but the reason, the rationale, even his notion of, now his notion of voting rights is crazy. What he's basically saying is that if there are laws and policies in place that enhance black voting power, those laws are not constitutional. But if there are laws in place that suppress black voting, those laws aren't constitutional either. But now he's going to his 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 view of laws that suppress black voting is much narrower. But I'm saying all that to say, and there are another other areas we could go in the takings clause. We could look at property law. We could look at prisons. He's hell on the punishment thing. But it's hell on the punishment thing derives from a sense that Negroes that are tearing up the black community must be punished. Who's going to speak for the victims? And it's disturbing. It would be disturbing for a lot of people when you read through Clarence Thomas's opinions, how much many black people would agree with Clarence Thomas on these things. But the assumption is that he's coming out of a white nationalist view and he is a white and he's a black faced white nationalist. No question about it. But his motive, he would say, at least had said in his opinions for all intents and purposes, coming out of concern for the black community. It is if we were having a government conversation, a governance category conversation, it would be much more complicated than we might try to make it to be. But I'm coming to this essential point. Professor Robin, his, his theory is that Clarence Thomas thinks, and he's got a chapter, I think this is chapter eight. Chapter eight is called the Black Constitution. Chapter nine is called the White Constitution. And, and, and Robin argues that Clarence Thomas thinks there's two constitutions. There's a Black Constitution and a White Constitution. And at, at heart, because he also quotes a very favorable review of Derrick Bell's book, um, uh, it was a face at the bottom of the well or and we are not saved. I'm looking over there on the shelf as if that's going to trigger my memory. It may have been faces. Clarence Thomas, not a devotee of, of critical race theory or Derrick Bell, but favorably looks on this, among other things from Derrick Bell, racism is permanent. It's not going to change. The country can't be reformed when it comes to race. So to argue about reparations, you're not going to get that. Hmm. 
to argue about changing the framework, you're not going to get that. So what to do, Clarence? Corey Robbins said, Clarence Thomas' philosophy is he has come to think he understands it by reading through his stuff and the speeches he's given, including at Savannah State University, HBCU, and the white schools. Corey Robbins said, he thinks, Clarence Thomas thinks, since this thing can't be fixed, it's got to get a hell of a lot worse in order for you to do something about it, and you shouldn't look to white people for anything. I'm talking to him, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that sounds a lot like a lot of black people I know. He said, yeah. Now, take that back to John Adams Hyman. Don't look to these people for nothing. If you want a new constitution, you got to write it from the ground up. And even after that, if they run a white man against you in your own party, if they got some other Negro that's trying to climb over you for that one Senate, uh, for that one con congressional seat in the black second, you got to fight, fight, fight. And don't look to them to help you for anything. Now, in its most perverse sense, without institutions to shape you, Clarence Thomas didn't go to Savannah State. Clarence Thomas didn't go to Howard Morehouse. Uh, Clarence Thomas didn't go to FAMU or, or Tennessee State or Texas Southern or Bethune-Cookman, Tennessee. He didn't go to North Carolina A&T or Bowie or Cheney. He didn't go to, uh, to, to Morgan State University. He didn't go to any of those schools. He went to Holy Cross. Good Catholic boy. He didn't go to Xavier. It's a black Catholic school. Nope. He went to Holy Cross. Then he went to Yale. He didn't go to Texas Southern. He didn't go to Miles College in Birmingham, Alabama. He didn't go to North Carolina Central School of Law or Howard University School of Law or the Florida A&M University School of Law. He did not go to the Southern University Law Center. In other words, he didn't go to any of those schools and all of them I named with the exception of Howard were set up in the 20th century to prevent black law students from going to the white schools in their states. Texas Southern has a law school because they didn't want them at the University of Texas. Florida A&M has one because they didn't want them at the University of Florida or Florida State University. The Southern University Law Center exists because they didn't want them at LSU. North Carolina Central has a law school because UNC was not for them. Remember the Pauli Murray stories we talked about. The point is this. Clarence Thomas didn't go anywhere where he could have run into a Spotswood Robinson, where he could have run into a incredible faculty that could have shaped the way. No, Clarence Thomas understands the world like this. Black people, you are on your own. Don't look to these people. Get you a gun. Keep government out of you building a business. And if you got any chance at all, damn it, get your coin up and fight these people on your own. Now, there's going to be some people say, yeah, yeah, but what does it look like when you have basically capitulated to a system that because you don't have that type of institutional grounding to enable you to think through it differently is not on, is not neutral. They fighting you the whole time. They're going to destroy the rest of y'all. Well, Clarence, okay, him and his uh, insurrectionist wife, they'll, they, I don't think they're getting in their RV this summer because they're scared, but, you know, they're going to be all right. And so will his clerks, who he's littered the federal judiciary with, and so are those black people who think like him. But what we have to have is a a governance space where we can have these debates and discussions and then on the other end of them build institutions that not only sustain us, but allow us to thrive and allow us to intervene in the world. So here we are, the 23rd of July, 2022, our 124th yeah. time together as we, you know, kind of wine for the day. And what this week, at least for me, has reinforced is not only the value of what we are doing, the necessity of what we're doing, but really 
like somebody eating a rib sandwich after being off port for years. What it would look like if we even try to put the brakes on what we're doing, which we couldn't do even if we wanted to. We can't go back in that other way. We now have a crack with this clean glass of water. Whew. It just, man, that really hit me today. This thing is this thing has taken off. It's it's continuing to rise and build momentum. And and we're just getting started. So so I'll pause with it. Um, I'm looking forward to what's coming next. Carl and Urias are at um Comic-Con, as you mentioned, in Urias, those of you who are in Nubia, Black Heroes Matter, he is uh posting. Uh, so we are getting a walk through, walk into the center and you know, convention center, go to some of the panels. Uh, you know, crazy. I've never been to have you ever been? You never been to Comic Con, huh? I, that's that where I, I actually met Carl the last time I was at Comic Con. I met Carl there because Michael Davis invited me to be on the black panel. He was late. Carl took the mic. I remember, I remember you telling that story, and I was like, Who's this guy taking the mic? You know, saving the day. Uh, I heard he had to he had to do it again yesterday. Really? Uh, yeah, but you know, we're gonna say less. That said, you know, um, and I think that was all divine providence, right? Because had I not met him at Comic Con, had Michael Davis not been late, we wouldn't probably be sitting here today. Because the question that I asked of Carl was, you know, first, can you build me a space game? Because he's in the gaming space. Wow. And then I said, I have this idea. Can you help me make it happen? And he put the team together that includes Urias. So wow. the, the process of building something starts with an idea. Yes. But you need you need people in divine providence, but it's in the showing up. It's in the asking for yeah. help. It's yeah. in the you know that that everything comes to fruition. So we are here primarily because of Comic Con. Look at that! Wow. You know what? This story just gets deeper and deeper. Wow. Oh, man. I've never experienced anything like these live streams, though, that they're dropping, these daily reports. I am just caught up. Nobody's done it. Nobody's done it because it's usually is a very white-facing space. You know, like uh, they Mm. have the Walking Dead thing. There's Black Panther. You know, all of the people, all of the usual suspects are there. Um, This being the 25th anniversary of the Black Panel, 25 years in a row, Michael Davis Milestone Comics has been doing this. Static Shock has been doing this black panel. Next year, I think there's going to be a narrative panel and a Nubian panel. I think we're going to uh, immerse ourselves because we are the stuff. I mean, you don't think you think about from Ms. Marvel to Black Panther to even Captain America with the vibranium uh, shield that comes straight from Wakanda. There's no comic book world without black people. There really isn't. That's right. People of, you know, African or you know other descent, and you know, and usually these stories come out of the others rising to become heroes, right? The 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 castaways, the castasides, the the folk that were not that's fitting, right. like fitting in, and that's kind of the story arc. That's us all day long. That's and right. if I think about office hours and how Uraeus, you know, he, you know, came up with Lincoln Little from mm. y'all had that now will be. A comic book series, probably a cartoon that was birthed in Nubia that we're going to first, of course, deliver in Nubia first. Mm. You know, you think about us banging up against each other, the folk in the chat banging up and ideas coming yes. to fruition. Y'all yes. got to 
you know, when you bring your brick, you know that you're putting it in place to build something. The building of something is all of us. Yes. In the chat right now, y'all can, you know, come together to do some things. People live in the same area, build a community. You know, this shouldn't be left to just people like, you know, Robert Church or J.B. Stratford and, and Ida B. Wells and others to imagine a world where we actually are empowered. We can bring that to fruition right here. So I'm excited excited about what the folk here are going to build. So yes, that's right. Somebody saying in in, in, in the chat, you know, where where's the live streams in the Black Heroes Matter room? These rooms, man. Join the group. I tried to comment and it was like, you ain't a part of the group. So I had to go join the group. group. Right. Yeah. Because I I posted in there. Hey, man, I have never been and I'm there. So you saying, wow, narrative Anubia getting ready, getting ready gotcha. to take over. Be fine, yo. Yes, next next July, next July, we got a lot of things we doing. Next August, we going to Egypt. Going next, to Egypt. Know, we're going so, to Egypt, and yeah, it's like I, I was telling you. I mean, I've been, you know. Anyway, we're gonna say less. We we just do it like it's there, and then like, wow, oh yeah, we've been saying it, and little by little, not no, lot by lot, we've been we getting together. In fact, I didn't even get to the thing next week there's this whole conversation about institutions of literacy that we didn't get to today and um i do want to i did pick this up i it's baseball season we passed the all-star game i was where was i i wasn't even able to see the beginning of the all-star game anyway i got my roberto clemente jim o'brien did a book called remembering roberto i got my hand i finally got my hands on this um yeah it's very interesting and of course, I just love Roberto Clemente, man. I met the brother just, but um, the reason I I picked this up is because this is a book of four hundred and forty-eight pages of not Jim O'Brien primarily, white writer in Pittsburgh, but teammates, family, friends, and fans writing about Roberto Clemente. And here's Vera Clemente, Roberto Jr., and Luis. On the back of the book with the writer Jim O'Brien, but they're all interviewed in here, as are most of his teammates, Al Oliver, you know, Manny Sanguian, Bill Vernon, so many people um, talking about how uh, Martin Luther King used to come and meet with them. I mean, I, I mean, just all kind of stuff, you know, and uh, and they also telling their stories. Doc Ellis, I mean, so many others, and so I just thought about that, Maddie Alou. But so, like, like I said, every week, like we said every week, I, you know, I'll show y'all something that I picked up uh, since the last time we saw each other. And uh, on Monday night, there is um, a screening of a movie, a new documentary on Emmett Till. And I got to figure out how I'm going to sync that with office hours because I might have to come in a little late. I'm you know, going to figure that out. But either way, um you know, the world is opening back up and that BA variant is real. And folks, you know, so is so is COVID fatigue. So people wearing masks as chin straps or bracelets. And I'm like, but it ain't on your mouth, in your face. So <laughs> please be careful. I mean, it's not inevitable that you're going to get COVID. And for me, I'm, you know, I'm not even as concerned, although, of course, I'm concerned about me. I'm concerned about long COVID. Yeah, no, I'm not. I have I have a Foolishness Friday live at Caroline's on Broadway tomorrow. Wait, see. what? Oh yeah, I'm doing uh anyway. So yeah, tomorrow. <laughs> you said anyway. Anyway, 
so tomorrow at 4 p.m. Uh, Broadway, we're going to be um, out in, in them streets. But I'm like, everybody's got to wear a mask. And I don't care whether the venue, y'all not going to be breathing and laughing and spitting out into the space where I'm going to be. And we're not, we not touching because there's monkey pox. So we're going to do... We we do Wakanda. We no question. Anything you want, right? As long as you ain't. <laughs> Touch me. I love you. Know that I love you. The heart is here. But yeah, we're not touching and spitting and breathing on each other. Not no, doing. No, no man, we're not doing that. Touching and spitting and breathing. No. <laughs> I got things to do, and, and we want to travel. We want to travel. Want to be healthy. I want to be. Yeah. July. We going to Jamaica. Like I want. I want to go out. I want to be out. You know, but we can't be out of it. Now they got polio. You see the polio? Somebody My got God. like, how are we getting polio in 2022? Y'all come on. And then the thing with the bats and, and the Marburg. Yeah. And, and everybody should know, even on the other end of the spectrum, and people have been saying this all along. I'm sure some people are saying in the chat right now, how many of us haven't picked up those seasonal sicknesses, the flu and everything, simply because, I mean, yeah. life is better. So let's just let it keep getting better in some way. <laughs> You know the greatest the greatest joy I had from Healthy Wealthy Wise this year, not just seeing you and Senyata and everybody yeah. and all the people, was that a ninety nine percent of people never had COVID, and b nobody got it after the event, and that was a you know a hundred and change, one hundred fifty people right. in, right. in, a, in a hotel situation, eating and communing and playing cards and listening, and we were super safe because we wore a damn mask. Yes. We How did the whole time, except for take pictures, and then I was holding my breath. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Isn't that something? Nobody got it, and that's something for that many people. Yeah. To be, which means it's possible. It is. It is. So let me give a lot of y'all. Everything is all right, but this right. space, I can't thank you enough for. I tell you what, all of us together, and I, I received all it there, but it's like it's all. It's just like this, is like currency. Currency is like water, but yes. this, this is currency. It's a clean glass of water flowing and flowing. You drink and it just keeps going. Wow. I love it. I love it That's here. Real bag. No question. You just said it. currency. That's right. That's right. That's okay. I'm gonna say that. All I right. love it too. I love you. See y'all you. tomorrow. Some of you in New York, some of you in um Maroon's medicine chest. Carl said he's gonna be up early because he's in San Diego. So it'll be like six o'clock in the morning there. Five, he's going to be there. And then Monday night, see you Tuesday, Meta Nature. Wednesday, oh, Monday, we're also going to do, is, uh, Virgo, uh, what is it, Leo season. So Sam Reynolds just reached out. He's like, all right, no, noon on uh, Monday, we're going to be doing the Virgos. I mean, I hey, don't miss that, y'all. Don't miss that. The, Leo, the Leos, those of you into that. Leos, yeah. My sister, my sister and my brother are both Leos, so. I gotta remind them to come on, come on in here and get this now. That's a lot of oxygen in the room. That's a lot of oxygen that the two of them was. Man, that must be a festival. You already know, as the kids would say, "Say less," or as they might say in that rap shit, "Say less." How y'all make two syllables out of every? Anyway, I'm gonna stop. <laughs> say less. And next month we're gonna be doing yoga. Lindsay uh, is bringing her brick, and I just saw a doctor. Dr. Berry is going to be teaching robotics. He just hit me on Twitter. Like, I'm in Nubia now. I'm a brick. I'm teaching robotics. What I got to do? Man. So, hey, I, 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 will, I will say this. I ain't going to say much more about it. But this intro class that we're going to that we're gonna load in, there's not going to be an intro class anywhere at any university in the world. 
that will match this intro to africana studies yeah intro african studies because again i mean and people i saw you know people have been asking you know can we take these courses for credit class credit yeah you're taking the courses for education at this stage but talk about a paradigm shift because it's going to be better than anything you could take at a university i agree i'm looking forward to it but but what does credit mean anyway and there we go. That's why I said I'm going to say less, because okay. I think that's really where we're going. I mean, ultimately, you know, what's so funny. I know we we, we getting ready to leave. Listening to these young people, the student athletes in the mornings for three hours who are employees of the university. I mean, to sit there with them and to work through readings and discussion, but then to hear them talk about what it means to be 18 years old and pretty much an employee of the university. Like we walk through name, image and licenses. I had to walk them through the Northwestern case I mean, because a lot of them weren't aware of the, the legal decisions and the challenges that those young people in Northwestern made to the system that yielded the point where now they said we're on the verge of y'all perhaps getting paid at least what work studies get students get paid. And then they was like, yeah, well, like NIL, we start to and you realize Bell Hooks would say this, for example, and did say it is on a college campus. That's considered subversive activity. You see, but for in the afternoon. These young people who are on full scholarship, who don't have to worry about loans or financial burdens, having conversations about the, many of their classmates who will arrive in August, who do have to take out loans, who are now paying 50 stacks and more in tuition. What we're doing here, you know, this is a major threat. I mean, because what we're doing is superior to what they get in there and they paying 50 stacks. Think of how insidious it is to require you to get this number of credits and it's usually an odd number where you have to take some bullcrap course that costs you X amount of more dollars to get to that number, to get this degree, to supposedly get a job, because this is the precursor to a job. This, hmm, this has to no, be. No, it's, 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 being, it's being reset. And in fact, it's so funny you say that. I know, like I said, we won't keep it. And I've told this story before, so I'm going to just do a shorthand. We had to go back through the in classes to go through the detail. One of my first assignments when I was an administrative school district working for my boss, Cassandra Jones, Dr. Cassandra Watson Jones, brilliant educator, master teacher, who ended up being associate superintendent in Philadelphia and a superintendent in Baltimore. Cassandra sent me to the law library to research the origin of Carnegie units when she had a convening of principals in Philadelphia and then went to a meeting at Penn State with all these state superintendents talking about, well, why do we have this number and what is a Carnegie unit? So when I went to Penn Law Library and started doing the research and came back with the report, we started laughing because the Carnegie units came from Andrew Carnegie Foundation endowing an, uh, a retirement pension fund for college professors. And to get in the fund, your school had to adopt the Carnegie unit as a measure of saying what an A in your class in St. Louis meant relative to an A in Nashville or an A in New York, because there was no standard number of hours connected to the grade letter because those schools were set up for the elites. And so if you went to Andover or Exeter, then you got into Harvard or Yale. But here come the great unwashed. And Andrew Carnegie was like, F that. If I endow this thing and get to your faculty, they're going to bang on you till you adopt it. And here's where the moral of the story goes. And here's why we're never going back. The Carnegie unit is based on one unit per number of hours in what they call time in seat. 
In other words, if you sit for X number of hours in an algebra class at Ben Franklin High School in Philadelphia, the B you get in that class will be the equivalent of a B that if you sat in Hillsborough High School in Nashville, Tennessee, and it's all tied to the amount of time you spend sitting literally in a class. Well, we know that ain't gonna work no more because some people watching this right now, it's three o'clock in the morning where y'all are. Somebody replaying it. Somebody's, for some of y'all, it's Thursday right now. What happened to the time and seat? We ain't never going back. So them, them credit hours is a different thing now. <laughs> anyway. Uh, thank you, Dr. Carr. We're going to leave. Uh, oh, yes. yes, that is John Adams, which I think is interesting. He's named John Adams after. After anyway. the guy who prosecuted uh, Christmas Addicts friends because saying that he got the police off, police off in the Boston Massacre. John Adams said, well, after all, they only shot a bunch of Jack Tars, Negroes, and Saucy Boys. He John Adams defended the police in the Boston Massacre. So, <laughs> and here's a brother who, John Adams probably spinning in his grave to see that man right there got his name. <laughs> John Adams Hyman, uh, mm. who was the man that probably sold him uh, to Alabama. Hyman. Uh, interesting. So we're going to leave with that. Let me say thank you, Dr. Carr. appreciate you immensely. I love you love with you. all my heart. And same with the Nubians. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. I'll see y'all in the Nubian streets and other places. And um, yeah, we're just going to let this image rock right now. <laughs>